Now what they're doing, because Google is able to better understand the content of that page, for a long page, they can divide it up into separate sections, which they call passages, and then rank them almost independently. So if you have a piece of long form content on a page to Google, that could be considered five, 10, or even 20 pages, depending on how it's laid out and how they interpret the different passages. Welcome B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, and grownups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. It is my pleasure to welcome Brian Dean of Backlinko, the website that offers next level SEO training and link building strategies. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Let's start with a discussion about your traffic, because I know you've written a lot about your traffic. And, um, you know, it looks like you, you've been at this a while. Yeah. I mean, 2013 is when the first stats for your site are up. And then it looks like, you know, things really took off for you. Well, let me just look at all time here. It looks like things started to pick up for you in 2016, and then they spiked in 2018 and again in 2019. And then you had this um, huge spike in traffic, uh, February 2020. Um, and I'm looking at um, SEMrush, and I'm not sure, okay. you know, obviously it's, a, it's an estimate. It's not 100% accurate. Um, but sort of talk us through, you know, what, what happened between, I guess, you know, early 2013 and, uh, you know, 2018 when you started to realize how to, how to build traffic. Yeah. So I think in 2013 through 18, I was really focusing on quality over quantity because I was in this super competitive space. You know, there, by the time 2013, it seems like forever ago. But even in 2013, there are tons of SEO blogs, marketing blogs, and I was a one-man show competing against these huge sites like Moz and HubSpot and even the SEMrush blog and just tons of different sites. And I realized that just putting out content wasn't going to help me stand out. So if I put out five tips for how to get higher rankings, it wasn't really going to do anything. You know, I was just going to get lost in the sea of other content out there. So that's when I was like, I had to do something kind of crazy to stand out. So I started publishing these massive guides that were super well designed, really expensive to get done, just to kind of put me over the edge to help me stand out. And that helped. That was that 2013 through 2018 growth that you saw. The challenge with that was that it's really hard to scale something like that. You know, every post was really long. I had, you know, sometimes 50 screenshots, all professionally taken and, you know, tweaked by a graphic designer to highlight things, make custom illustrations. And I didn't really know how to scale. I kind of hit a wall when it came to traffic, when it came to scaling content. And I realized that I needed more help. I needed more people involved to help me. So I still do all the writing myself, but in 2018, I flipped the switch and I was able to kind of put the pieces together, build a team around content. And we're able to go from about one post every month, every maybe six to eight weeks to two posts a month. And it doesn't sound like a lot, two posts a month, but it's literally more than double what we're doing. And it helped the traffic go up quite a bit. Could you have done that in the U.S. or did uh, sort of building a global network of freelancers and, and sort of gig workers, was that 
necessary to make it happen? I think it was necessary because most of these roles are not full-time roles. So for example, the person that takes our screenshots, there, we, we use a lot of screenshots, but not enough for a full-time employee. Same thing with, for example, taking a Google Doc and putting it into WordPress. Like these sound like mundane things, but this is what, these are the, the sort of barriers that prevent people from scaling up content, this sort of practical stuff. And that's someone that maybe works 15 hours a week. So actually having a worldwide network of gig workers was super helpful because that way we could find specialists to come in and do these things for 10 or 15 hours a week rather than hiring one full-time person that isn't an expert in all these different things. And having done that now for, I guess, what, three, four years, uh, any good tips on sort of remote workforce management, how to hire people and manage people um, in that environment? Sure. I have a couple, one for hiring and one for managing that have helped a lot over the last couple of years. For hiring, my number one tip is this old Seth Godin quote, which is, I need to work with you before I can work with you. And I, what I used to do back in the day, I would hire someone off of, let's say, Upwork, give them a big project, and then it wouldn't work out because I would hire them based on their cover letter, based on their reviews. And in the surface level, this makes sense. This is a good way to hire someone. But in reality, it's really not because you don't know how they're going to do with your specific project. You don't know how they're going to get along with you. You don't know what their other clients' expectations were. So what I do now is I hire five or 10 people at once for a small paid test project. Because if you see a free test project, all the high level people who are good aren't going to apply, which makes sense. I wouldn't either. So you give them a fee for their test project, make it a small unit of what you want them to do. So for example, for let's say taking screenshots and then designing them in Photoshop to be highlighted and things of that nature, you say, okay, I'm going to hire you to do five of these, right? Then whoever does the best in terms of communication, in terms of delivery times, in terms of delivering quality work, you just go with them and then you go to 10. And then you go to 15 and then eventually you'll find someone good. So that's helped me a lot, like just screening. Cause I was doing it. I, it was this sort of process where I'd hire someone and then a week later I'd find they weren't good. Then I post another job. And then a week later I find they weren't good. And it just took forever to find someone good. This way you're condensing all that in about a week and you could find someone good. What's the best way to communicate the requirements of a gig job with those types of workers? Is it enough to post a really good standard operating procedures job or do you have to have one-on-ones and actually manage them and give them feedback? Uh, For most test projects and most things you're hiring gig workers for, There might be a little bit of back and forth, but that's actually kind of a red flag. If you have good standing operating standard operating procedures and you can send someone, okay, here's what you do. And most importantly, here are examples. So I think a a mistake I used to make back in the day too, was I would send someone this huge document. It's exactly how to do this. And I didn't really give them any examples of what the final product should look like. I would give them all the steps in between, but I missed that last step. So now I really focus on the last step and sort of leave it up to them how they want to do it. So for example, with screenshots, you know, we could have a huge SOP with here's how you, you know, add highlights, here's the program you use, but I'll leave it up to that person. Maybe they use Photoshop. Maybe they use a different program. I don't really care. All I care about is that end result. So I tend to just deliver that and say, if you can do this, you're going to be in good shape. Of all the digital marketers out there today, who do you admire most? 
Um, I would say probably Larry Kim, uh, founder of WordStream and also now Mobile Monkey, just because he's someone that is able to be everywhere. He has this knack for being like omnipresent on different channels and he's good at taking anything from zero to a certain level and then that second level too. Most people can only do one or the other, right? A lot of people are good at taking getting something off the ground, but when it comes to scaling it into a huge company, they can't do it. Or the opposite, some people are good at taking something that's growing and adding rocket fuel to it. And Larry's one of the few that can do both. You know, when you say, when you give me that answer, I'm thinking about all these um, uh, step-by-step tutorial uh, articles and videos that you make. Does that same level of care go into the SOPs? Um, no, because I don't love it as much. And I'm trying to, I wouldn't say I'm trying to get away from SOPs, but we have tons of them, don't get me wrong. But I'm trying not to use them as a crutch because the issue with SOPs is that you create them and then you need someone to sort of like stay on top of it because things change. So if you have an SOP about how to send an email in MailChimp, and then they change a button and then they change something, you got to update the SOP. And I'd rather work with people that don't need that level of detail that can say, oh, this button moved. Let me look at the documentation myself and figure it out. So I'm trying to get away from SOPs. That way I can hire people that are more adaptable. Um, But it depends on the task and the the level of person that you want to work with. But in general, I'm trying to sort of get away from them and just be like, here's the end result. And then in between, let me know if you have any problems sort of thing. Obviously, uh, digital business is getting more competitive every day. Um, And there are so many different nuances to uh, different industries and specializations. Is there a one-size-fits-all approach to SEO that works? Not really. (laughs) Honestly, it's so, you have to nail these like separate things that of course is overlap. That's why it's, it's, it's an under the umbrella of SEO, like you said, Eric, but they are, are somewhat separate in that finding a specialist for one won't necessarily help you with the other. A great example of this is content versus technical SEO. There's, you can find tons of overlap between the two, but in general, they're really separate, you know, with a technical SEO, task or person. You want someone who can code. You want a developer. You want someone who knows Python or Rails. And with a content person, they might not even know HTML. They might not even know what HTML is, and they can still do a great job at it and vice versa. The technical SEO person may not be able to write to save their life. So there is overlap between all the different facets of SEO from content to link building to on-page optimization. But for the most part, they are very separate and there isn't like a one thing that will get you all the results you need. Uh, Let's geek out for a minute. Um, So to improve the accuracy of specific searches, Google announced passage-based indexing. Can you explain what that is? So passage-based indexing is basically looking at your page as multiple separate pages. So how they used to index pages was they would go crawl your site. And if you had a hundred pages, they would look at the hundred pages independently. And each one was a thing, you know, you'd have a hundred pages and a hundred opportunities to rank with those pages. Now what they're doing, because Google is able to better understand the content of that page for a long page, they can divide it up into separate sections, which they call passages. 
and then rank them almost independently. So if you have a piece of long form content on a page to Google, that could be considered five, 10, or even 20 pages, depending on how it's laid out and how they interpret the different passages. So for people that write long form content and don't have a lot of pages, this is a great opportunity to rank because Google can start divvying up your pages, uh, one page into several different pages, which gives you more opportunities to rank. And is that basically a series of anchors? Like I noticed on some of these uh, content uh, hubs that you publish, there are sort of a series, they're long pages and there are little sections and each section has a different background color. Are those passages? I mean, they are, I mean, I started making those way before this announcement. So that, but those are exactly what Google would consider passages. Yes. Any discrete section on your, on your page that discusses a specific topic will be considered a passage. Um, so yeah, it's really important now to divide up your content into discrete sections, which is always, it, it's a best practice before this because it's just good for readability. You know, someone that's skimming a page doesn't want to see a big wall of text. They want to see everything into discrete sections. And it turns out that this also helps Google understand the different sections of your page too. So do you want some sort of like a table of contents with links at the beginning that anchor to the, just these different passages to help Google ingest it? I think that I'm not positive. I mean, I do that as one of those things that I think it's good to do anyway, just because it helps people jump and it helps Google. It's helped Google before understand some of the layout of your page and that things are steps, for example. So if you have step one, step two, step three, it's nice to put a table of contents at the top that links to those different steps. So yeah, I think this is a good idea to do anyway. And especially now because of passages, like you said, Eric. Is there a good WordPress plugin for that? I always have to do it by hand and it's such a pain. <laughs> Not that I know of. We just do it by hand because there's still that HTML jump link element, as it's called, where you put the little pound sign at the end or hashtag, as the kids call it, and uh, it takes you right to that section. So, no, we just do it manually because with a plugin, you know how it is. got to update it. There's security issues. And I try to minimize those uh, as much as I can. The Google algorithm is the Coca-Cola formula of the modern ages. No one knows what's in it for sure, but there is a way to peer into the algorithm and see what words your customers are searching most and what words your competitors are ranking for. For hard numbers on keywords that drive traffic to my site, uh, I use SEM Rush. They have the largest, freshest database of keywords. And for a limited time, you can get two weeks of SEMrush free at ericschwartzman.com forward slash SEMrush. This is a special offer that won't last. So if you want two weeks of free keyword research, go to ericschwartzman.com forward slash SEMrush right now and claim this deal. Let, let's talk for a minute about measurement. Um, What's the, and, and I do want to, I, I, I was looking at uh, your site on Built With, and I do want to sort of dig through that and ask some specific questions. But first, just at a high level, one of the areas I always struggle is measuring uh, email marketing, traffic from my email marketing to my site. Um, I usually have to do the UTM parameter links manually using Google Campaign Builder. Is there a better way to go? Uh, not really, <laughs> as far as I know, because if you think about it, it's measuring in a black box, like it's in that person's inbox. So the only two ways to really measure is your ESP. So if you use AWeb or MailChimp or ConvertKit or whatever, they'll tell you how many people clicked on a link. And for me, 
I just tend to use that if, unless it's like a campaign that I'm tracking and I need to tie it to something else. But for the most part, if I'm like, how many people clicked on this email and went to the page I wanted them to, I just usually look at the email service provider. But you're right. If you want to get into the nitty gritty of what, how the campaign did, behavior, maybe how much money it made, then you definitely want to use UTM parameters. As far as I know, that's the only way to do it just because these clicks are happening in a black box. And once they click on the link, that's when you can start tracking them. Let's uh, get into sort of your preferred digital marketing stack because I mean, you've been at it since 2013. I know you've tried a bunch of different things that you're not, that you've used over the years. You're not using them anymore. Um, what is sort of your, what's your CRM, you know, beyond just the, the presentation layer, which I know is WordPress, and the basics like Yoast, you know, what else do you have in there? Cause like, I, I'm not familiar with Aweber, this uh, email platform you use, a little off the beaten path. It's interesting to me that you're using that. There must be something good about it. So talk us through your, your stack. So the site itself was just WordPress for years. And like you said, the presentation side is still WordPress. And last year we recoded the backend using Next.js, which is a JavaScript platform that framework, which is much faster than PHP. So basically how it works is we recoded the backend to be Next.js. So it loads really fast. And the front is a combination of WordPress and that. Honestly, it was really technical too. I almost wouldn't recommend it, but it helped the site load a lot faster because one of the issues with all these illustrations and screenshots is that it slows down your site a lot. So that was something that helped. But yeah, for the most part, if you just want a WordPress site, you won't need to do that unless your site has these super high-rised images. In terms of Aweber, the reason you haven't heard of it, Eric, is probably just because it's kind of old school. It's not like a new one. It's actually an old one. It's probably, it's, they're famous, to put it in perspective, they're famous for creating the first autoresponder. So that's how old it was. Like They were famous for creating the first autoresponder tool. And I use them just because of simplicity. It's not like they, it's amazing, but it's for, for my kind of email marketing, which is write an email, click send with some very basic automation stuff. It kind of works for me. If you want advanced, you know, click this, they add to this list and then they go to this and there's all this marketing automation stuff. There are better tools out there, but if you're mostly broadcasting newsletters, I recommend a simpler tool like AWeb or MailChimp or something like that. And you go with straight, pretty much straight text. I mean, it's not a text email because you do have links in there, but I noticed you don't use images and you typically don't personalize. You just say, hey, on the intro. Uh, have you done some testing and found that that's what works best? Yeah, I have. I've done a lot of testing with designed emails and images and adding different things. And for the most part, what I found is the simpler the email, the higher the click-through rate, the higher engagement. And it makes sense. Like if you want to build a relationship with your customers and your leads, you want to make your emails look like they're coming from a person, not a brand. And people don't usually, like my mom doesn't send me emails that have designs and screenshots and images and stuff. It's just a plain text email. So the better you can simulate that with your email marketing, the more likely you are to get an open rate and click through rate that's high. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you need to use totally, like you said, Eric, it's not plain text, but all text. Like with some of my other newsletters, we have a design, but we try to keep it at a minimum because not only does it help engagement, we've also found that it helps get delivered to the primary tab in Gmail. So we've done tests with this and the bigger the email in terms of HTML, in terms of file size, the more likely it is to land in the promotions tab, which just makes sense. If most emails that are promotional have a bunch of stuff, 
they have big screenshots they you know, have this and that, but emails that are primary that are meant for you personally, usually don't have that stuff. So I think that's one ranking factor that Gmail uses to separate the primary from the promotions tab. Uh, it looks like you, you went, you moved from, um, Optimizely over to Google Optimize um, early this year. Uh, any lessons learned there? Anything, anything you can share with us about why you made that choice? Um, well, they basically did the same thing. There wasn't, I'm sure with Optimizely, the person, you know, anyone who works there is probably cringing if they're listening to this. I'm sure they have tons of features that are that Google Optimize doesn't have, but we're just running basic split tests. You know, does this page, to convert better than the slightly different page. I'm sure if you want to do multi-arm bandit stuff, Optimizely is for you. But for what we're doing, a simpler tool worked better. So we just ended up going with that. And how aggressive are you on A-B testing? Not are very, to be honest. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, yeah, no, I'm not very, to be honest, because the issue with A-B testing is that you have to really it has to be a process. Uh, what a mistake that I used to make, and I know a lot of people make, is to run a split test, find a winner, go with the winner, and just stick with it. And in theory, that sounds great. But in order for that to work, you need to run multiple tests over time to make sure that te that test was relevant in the first place. Because what a lot of conversion rate optimization experts will tell you is that just by adding something new, the new page will convert better because people that have landed on the page multiple times will just see, oh, this is different and kind of catch their attention. So a lot of times the new variant will win, but over the long term, it won't win. It actually be worse. Um, so I just don't have the time to stay on top of CRO to, to eke out a, you know, a 1% increase in conversion rate. I'd rather just get more traffic and, and make up the difference that way. Right. Yeah. Hey, um, I noticed that it doesn't look like you're using Yoast anymore. Are you, are you pretty much beyond that at this point? In your uh, no, we are using Yoast, but I think because of the next JS, you know, coding, it doesn't show up on the front end. Like it, oh, interesting. To, it, it kind of now sets this, everything up and then deploys it. The Next.js uh, coding that you've implemented, is that invisible to you as a user? I mean, you're just still using WordPress and that's in the back end. Exactly. So it's visible to, to a user you can't tell, to if you're a coder and you got into the code, you could, you could tell. But it's basically WordPress, but it loads faster. So on the back end, everything's still WordPress as normal. And it just deploys as like a combination of Next.js and WordPress. So as a user, it just seems the same, but loads quicker. And I think that might be why Yoast and some of the other plugins don't show up is because it's kind of weird with how that works. Can you run, uh, you know, a, an update on, on WordPress without having to redo that? Or do you have to sort of rejigger that each time you do the update? So far, so good. Because yeah. I think what happens is most of the WordPress stuff is in never deploys front facing. So it doesn't really affect that. It's more for the, the WordPress is more for us, like to, you know, for our C, us to be able to manage everything. Cause as you know, Eric, it's just a great CMS for managing everything. And the front end is still Next.js. So I'm sure there's going to be eventually some things that don't match up, but so far it's been pretty smooth. So, you know, you're doing a bunch of courses and, you know, I think that's from what I've heard on some of the other podcast interviews you've done, it seems like most of your revenue is coming from courses at this point. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the tech stack behind uh, learning management. How do you del deliver courses to your audiences? 
So we use a, a WordPress plugin that we basically created back in 2013 when I launched my first course. So back in 2013, you might remember, Eric, there was no such thing as an LMS. I mean, of course there was, but it wasn't like today where there's Teachable and all these other big ones coming out. It was kind of bare. I tried all of them and none of them did what I wanted. Like even basic stuff, I'd want, you know, module one to be the first week and then the second week module two. And then when we wanted tiers, we wanted, you know, students to have access to this material if they opted for this course. And if they opted for the, you know, the standard version is a little bit cheaper, they would get this material. And it was impossible to find. Now I'm sure Teachable and uh, Thinkific and all that do that out of the box, but they didn't. So we basically created something in WordPress that does the same thing. So everything's WordPress. The only thing that's, um, that's not is the actually check out page. But even that, when they sign up, that's using Gravity Forms. And then it just creates a user in WordPress in the back end. And then we just manage it that way. So it's something that I wouldn't, rec I wouldn't have built today, but back then there wasn't anything out there that had all the features that we wanted. And then in terms of, you know, handling concurrent uh, users, are you doing that in Drupal? How are you handling that? What do you mean by concurrent users? Well, let's say, for example, you had, uh, I don't know, a thousand people watching a course at the same time. Mm. Would they be watching it in WordPress? Yes. They would and be. then with the, the videos are hosted on Wistia. Sorry, I should have said that. There is a little bit of stack on the back end. So we have the WordPress is the actual layout of the members area, logins, billing is done through Stripe and WordPress. Then the videos, if they're video, if it's video material is delivered via Wistia which is just a hosting platform. And then for downloading resources like uh, checklists and workbooks and the videos themselves, we use AWS for hosting all that stuff. And that's pretty much it. It's, it's, it's a pretty simple stack for the backend. And you have a new sort of DIY course on public relations. Uh, how heavy a lift is it to get a new course up? What goes into it? How much time does it take? Uh, it takes about four months from start to finish. It's quite an endeavor. I'm sure it could be more efficient if, if we tried to, you know, we had everything timed perfectly where, you know, I wrote a module and then I filmed it and then got that into production. And then we was working on module two, but how, how I'm doing it now is I write the entire course almost like a book where it's all laid out. Every word is, is ready how to many, go. How many words is a course would you say? maybe like 50,000 words. Okay. So then I go to the studio and film the videos and then have those edited. We add graphics and other help, you know, resources to help people learn. How long does it take to film a 50,000 word script? About two days. Yeah. It used to take more, but now I discovered the teleprompter, which has changed everything so much faster. So that takes about two days in the studio and then maybe another day to go back in and film some other things that maybe didn't look right or didn't, didn't go right. That's about half a day. Then we send it to the editor. He cleans up everything and we have him add graphics and screenshots to the videos. Then we create worksheets and other resources, which are a mix of text and video and audio to help people. And then we got to create the sales page, write the sales page. That's 12,000 words, then get it designed and then upload all this stuff to the LMS. So that it's, it's definitely four months, maybe sometimes five or six, depending on the course. This one's a little bit faster just because we're sort of getting the hang of things. How much handholding does the editor need? Uh, are you pretty much get, cause I noticed like you have, uh, you know, they, they move very quickly, your videos and you bring in, 
images and you bring in uh, uh, text of what you're saying as you're saying it. Uh, so it's, it's, there's enough cutting to sort of keep you interested. How much uh, autonomy do you give the editor and how much instruction do you have to give them of when to do what? I would say he has almost 100% autonomy at this point. Like he's gotten to the point where he's better than me that I could, any recommendation I could give him because he's been doing my videos for six years or seven years. So at this point, he knows more tricks than me. So there's nothing I could tell him that he doesn't already know. So it's pretty much film the video. He has the raw footage and then he does his magic audio cleanup, color correction, all those things you mentioned, the graphics, the transitions, and it just comes out really nice. Hey, um, I, I appreciate you taking uh, the time to do this because um, I know, uh, you know you got a lot going on. So thanks, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to be on the show. Hey, just as a sort of as a parting question, um, you know, we see obviously artificial intelligence getting better every day. And um, you have to wonder, you know, at what point Google's going to get away from inbound links and maybe start actually being able to comprehend information. When I talk to some uh, SEOs about it, they say, you know, Google is basically building, has a, um, a deep learning algorithm now that is even smarter than the people who built it. Not even they can really comprehend all the information going in and make make judgments. So do you think we get to the point where, uh, you know, technical SEO becomes irrelevant? Um, I don't, I think it'll become less important because I don't think it's as much about AI. It's more that the technical side will become easier because of new tools and software and you wouldn't have to worry about it. But in terms of the AI question, it's a good one. My, my take is that what Google is using right now, their AI algorithms, I use that plural for a reason. There's multiple running at once. And what it does is it basically looks at the web, tries to basically build its own ranking factor list, tweaks it in real time, which is why ranking fluctuations are so common now, and then figures out what is the best correlation between user satisfaction and the ranking factors they're looking at. And the reason I think backlinks will stay around is because even if they can understand a page fully, they can't know whether this is an authoritative resource without looking elsewhere on the web. So they're always going to use external signals to figure out, is this page authoritative? Is this site authoritative? And at the end of the day, links are still one of the best ways to do that. So I think they'll always be part of the algorithm, even if AI just takes over, just because it's a really good signal. Great. Well, hey, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Brian Dean from Backlinko, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.